You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. Search and rescue. As mountain athletes, we know the expertise, technical knowledge, and bravery that goes into helping fellow mountain lovers in distress. Search and rescue work is invaluable, but it's also shrouded in mystery and can be pretty hard to talk about too, given the tragic outcomes of some rescues. The AAC and Rocky Talkie are partnering once again this year to offer the Search and Rescue Award, giving a total of $36,000 to three search and rescue teams who responded to 2022 incidents in exceptional and inspirational ways. In this episode of the podcast, we talked to Grant Cleves, a volunteer with URA Mountain Rescue, one of the winning SAR teams for last year's award. We talked to Grant about some of the operational and logistical challenges that SAR teams face, and he walks us through the decision-making process for a particular rescue URA did in 2021. Hi, Grant. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, let's just get started by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Grant Queeves. I'm a member of Uray Mountain Rescue for the purpose of recording today. Definitely have a background in climbing, kind of all around outdoors, more or less my entire life. And then eventually, early 30s, got into mountain rescue as a volunteer. And yeah. Still do all the things. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, many things, including ice climbing, right? Because you are you compete for USA Ice Climbing. Is that correct? I have been on the USA Ice Climbing team. Yeah. We'll see if I make the team this year. Oh, that's exciting. When, does, when do you find out? Tryouts are coming up here pretty soon. So we'll uh, try to climb hard here in October and then see how that goes. Besides ice climbing, what else? You said all the things. <laughs> Give us more details. Oh, man. So so I grew up and I got into the outdoors kind of through, actually through bow hunting for the most part, and started off with that, spent a tremendous amount of time. I guided hunters for a little bit, and then mid-late mid 20s, I got into, into climbing, and like most of the people who really get into climbing, I have not stopped for longer than like a week since then. That's awesome. And what do you do besides search and rescue and climbing? What do you do in your daily life? My day-to-day job is I'm actually a project manager for a local construction company. So how do you balance it all? I mean, I, I'm interested. Let's get, we're going to get more into the SAR <laughs> stuff too, but like, seems like a lot. <laughs> you know, like probably most of us that are outdoor addicts, I don't know if I do a great job of balancing all of those things. Uh, I'm fortunate my job is extremely flexible. So if I get a SAR call... I can be out the door generally if it's if it's important enough to drop work, I can definitely leave work. And there's lots of good climbing within 15 minutes of my house, so I can I can sneak in a lot of climbing and and all in all, yeah, I I managed to I managed to stay busy. We'll put it that way. Oh, uh, yes, climbing 15 minutes from your house is definitely the ideal situation. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved in search and rescue. What was it that motivated you to to make that decision, you know, after a while of climbing, had you always been thinking you wanted to get involved in that? I mean, climbing is kind of a selfish sport. So, you know, it's, there's kind of some ability to look for a way to give back. And then there's also a lot of my climbing partners were on search and rescue before I was. And so I got to look at what they were doing and, you know, it would occasionally happen that we'd be at the crag and everybody's pagers would go off. And it was like, well, I'm here. Why am I not helping you guys and so you yeah, sense of community as well i would say there's 30-ish people on your mountain rescue and those are probably 30 of my really good friends now so there's benefits with that as well yeah absolutely tell us about a pivotal moment in your climbing career Whew, that's uh <laughs> um i have had a lot of life-changing moments I think in climbing it is uh it's done a lot for me maybe the one that would relate the most is I uh I had a very close call last spring up in Alaska and got hit by a good-sized rock um which ended up making uh Patagonia Journal if anybody wants the story on that I think you could find it pretty easily 
but that was definitely that reframed my looking at risk a little bit. Yeah, I bet because it might be, it must be different to engage in a lot of rescues or recoveries, but at the same time, maybe not have had a personal experience with risk. Like that can just make it really different. For sure. And, you know, the the personal close call is something that's, I think, you know, at some point or another, probably most people have one, but it uh, it definitely is a little jarring and made you look at, make you look at the people that we deal with on rescues and recoveries a little differently. We're like, oh yeah, that actually can really easily happen to me. So tell us about a little bit more about URA Mountain Rescue. Is it all volunteer-based? It is all volunteer. I think you could probably generalize that in the lower 48, not very many people get paid for search and rescue. But yeah, all volunteer, give or take 30 to 35 people on the team at any given point in time. And kind of a wide, wide mix of people. It is... I would say a lot of very strong personalities, which is amazing. We get along as well as we do for as strong personalities and as strong willed as almost everybody is. But yeah, a wild, a huge amount of expertise from people who are mountain guides to, I think we have trauma surgeon on the team at this point in time, multiple, multiple people who have medical qualifications of various degrees. Yeah. Kind of, kind of people from all backgrounds, which is, is super cool. Yeah, that is super cool. And so how does one get trained? Because obviously people are coming from different levels of experience. Some people might have already had search and rescue experience and stuff like that. Is Can you tell me a little bit about the training process? Sure. So, I mean, in general, the people who are selected to be on the team are already pretty skilled at something, you know, whether it's medical or whether it's, I'd say, probably most of the people have some climbing background and or some we have a lot of rafting guys that have a good swift water background and so people come in with a pretty good skill set but we also we have trainings where we will pretty much every one saturday a month we'll have a a team-wide training where we'll all do rope work or medical skills or patient packaging kind of pick a pick a skill that we think we need to work on and and do a do a half day work on that and then usually a couple evenings per month we have like optional trainings where bonus trainings where work on knots or rigging or building a mechanical advantage system so it's you know a lot of people come in with something and then we try to tune it together and make sure everybody knows what everybody's capabilities are as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This makes me think of the rather silly question I was going to ask later, which was what piece of equipment or gear are you particularly psyched to use anytime you're training or something like that? You're like, this is just really fun. (laughs) I mean, as a climber, I greatly enjoy the fancy mechanical advantage systems to pull people out of a hole or, you know, I, I like those as far as a piece of gear that goes with that. The Petzl Maestro is pretty fun. <laughs> Cause isn't that like a giant Grigri essentially? It's a, it's a giant Grigri with a pulley in it essentially. So mm-hmm. yeah, you can do, you name it, whatever you can do with a pulley and whatever you can do with a Grigri, you can kind of do with that. Yeah. The, I didn't think a lot of people don't quite understand that there's a a really, really technical element to search and rescue that like a lot of people, like it just really involved, especially those rope systems to haul somebody out of a pretty precarious, like steep hill or something, right? Like there's a lot going on to make sure that that person is stable and that all of the people on the team are safe. So it sounds like it's really technical. And we're we're really lucky here in URA because I would suspect that we might get more high angle rescues than almost anywhere, really. I mean, we're smack in the middle of some of the steepest terrain and we have the URA Ice Park. And just in general, we probably get the ability to train and the ability to practice that more than most people do. So that that's an awesome situation to be in here. And so what radius does uh, URA Mountain Rescue serve? We're pretty much Uray County, which is not a 
particularly large county. And then occasionally it's possible every now and then we'll do assist for the counties that join us. We're close to the Black Canyon, so occasionally we might end up helping those guys out. And Silverton, those guys we help occasionally. Yeah, it's, you know, it's largely just us. Yeah. Do you end up collaborating? So it seems like you maybe collaborate with um, search and rescue teams in the surrounding counties. Is there any other like organizations or I'm assuming police forces and stuff like that you end up collaborating with? Technically, we're a sort of a division of the local sheriff's department. I mean, that's how we get authority to do what we do sort of a volunteer volunteer arm of the sheriffs. So we coordinate with them a lot. But as far as the out of county, not as much. It's more or less just dealing with the with the search and rescue teams from from other counties if we do end up interfacing with them. How many call outs do you get a year? And then are they mostly in the winter? Are they mostly in the summer? Does it just depend on the year? It's super variable. I think our all-time high was 2019, and we ended up with 35. I could be very wrong, just off of memory. But, uh, you know, it averages somewhere in the 20 to 30 range, I think. It's incredibly random. Uh, This summer has been extraordinarily not busy, which is odd. There's people, tons of people in town, tons of stuff going on, and people have just been safe, which we'll take. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes at winter, we we typically get a uh, ice park accident or two every winter. But winter's generally slower if you had to very broadly generalize. And summer, summer we get a lot of, uh, like, broken legs on trails. It's kind of the standard situation. Yeah, so I actually, I think all the listeners will know, because I <laughs> talked about this in the intro, that... The Ure Mountain Rescue Team won the Rocky Talkie Search and Rescue Award, which is helping fund your guys' volunteer work, which is really incredible. And we're so grateful that Rocky Talkie does this grant, partnering with the AAC. But in, in part of kind of winning that grant, you guys all told a story of a rescue on Mount Sneffels. And that was part of, your, you know, winning, you told this story. And it was really quite a crazy story because if I read it correctly, when you first got the information about the rescue, you were told it was a confirmed fatality and then the guy was alive. So I guess walk us through that story and kind of the decision making that went behind that rescue and give us basically people who aren't involved in search and rescue a little bit of peek behind the curtain of what goes on there. Sure. And so I am definitely not the person getting the phone call. So it's entirely possible I misunderstand just a little bit of what went on initially, but we got a page out from the injured party's inReach. And his climbing partner found his inReach, which somehow fell, he had equipped with outside of his harness or outside of his backpack, I think. And Somehow his climbing partner found that and was able to send a a message, but she didn't have the phone. And so she was just kind of pushing button the buttons on the inReach, the SOS button, and then they I would I believe inReach the dispatch that's attached to that sent back a what's going on. And somehow or another she managed to hit the confirmed fatality button, which I guess is an option. I later got into this because I found the inReach while we were up there later on that day and the screen was broken. So I think she couldn't read the screen and she was just pushing yes um, all to everything. And somehow or another, they then managed to cancel the, the call out like 20 minutes later. And none of us is really sure how that happened. I think it was again, like the broken screen and just pushing the buttons on the inReach trying to, trying to confirm that they did need a rescue. In all honesty, that is not unusual at all for messages coming off of an inReach to be very, very unclear. It does seem like there's a certain amount of like button pushing that goes on, and uh, for a while they had they had a lot of false alarms, and and people would set them off and not realize they had set them off. And I think they fixed that within the software. So a lot of it came through to us a lot as we think there's something going on on Mount Snuffles. 
And so we sent an advanced team up there to find out exactly what the situation was, which is super typical. I mean, that probably happens three, four or five times a year where there's nothing going on. So it's uh, all hands on deck, but hold on until we find out what really is going on. Yeah. And so what did you guys find when you got there? I think we sent three people up in, we have a side-by-side and they got to the trailhead and they were able to confirm with some, I think some off-roaders who were parked at the trailhead that there was indeed somebody on the mountain and that their climbing partner and several other bystanders were with them trying to keep them warm, essentially. This was all squarely in the middle of a really nasty high country thunderstorm. In probably an hour, it probably put down an inch and a half, two inches of hail. It was drenching rain when it wasn't hailing, and the the temperature was right around freezing for the entire duration of this. So getting the guy warm was high priority, and keeping him warm was high priority. So as soon as as they figured that out, we got the call back at the barn that, like, hey, this is a everybody go type of situation. And that was uh, when we loaded up, we kind of... We divvy out, you know, who's who's going to be the advanced team. And that's usually, we have a vehicle we can fit like five people in. So we would put two people who can run comms, and we would put two or three people who are probably the fastest people on the team, and maybe the most medically qualified. Because, you know, we want to get there as quick as we can and determine what the situation is. And then we want to have the ability to put early care on there. And about what time of day was this? This is like mid-afternoon? This was, yeah, I want to say it was three, four in the afternoon. It was getting towards late afternoon by the time we we got the notice to, that we were actually going. And I think, I want to say the accident happened around noon is what we later found out. It took a minute for everything to happen. So we, yeah, we loaded, I think, five guys in the second vehicle to go up there. And that was me probably our most qualified medical guy and a couple of the the really fast guys. And we all made it to the trailhead pretty quickly. The road was bad conditions. I mean, it was dumping rain, but we were able to get to the trailhead and it was a full lightning storm. And we were, I think at one point we counted like 22 strikes in five minutes within, within sight. Um, You could, we were hanging out in the vehicle, which was not that much fun. And and just uh, just waiting, and you know we're we're in communications with with rescue headquarters down at our rescue barn, and more or less we're waiting for them to give us the green light. With they're looking at the lightning stripe map and the storm map, and talking to the weather service, and we're just waiting for the green light to go up the mountain. And after it was probably an hour of sitting there, we got a very slight break and two guys were able to jump up the trail a little ways and meet the uh, injured guy's hiking partner and the off-roaders who had, who had been helping were coming down because they were getting pretty severely hypothermic at that point. And we were able to get the, uh, the climber's partner into one of our rescue vehicles and get her warmed up. And we were able to get the off-road guys back into their car and get them headed down the road uh, back to their camp. But it was still a waiting game at that point. And at that point, we knew we had we got more information from them. I believe his partner said, well, when we left him, he'd been unresponsive for a little while. So we don't know what what state he's in. Um, and, you know, given the temperatures and he was pretty much soaked to the skin, it was unclear how much he had responded to anybody after the fall. I, I get the impression that not very much. We were able to, so we, we ended up spending another probably close to hour in the cars waiting for the, waiting to get clearance from the storm. And like most of us, the very independent people that are on the rescue team, I think we probably jumped the gun by about 10 minutes before we got the actual official okay. We kind of looked at each other in the car and like, this clear enough for you? Yeah, this is clear enough for me. Let's, we'll, we'll ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> and so yeah, we jumped out and headed up the the standard route on Mount Sneffels, which is kind of an ugly, ugly scree slope for the first 
seven eight hundred feet of vertical and it's all wet right now yeah covered in ice at this point in time from the hail um but yeah it was still still raining but the lightning had tapered off which was which was nice we were you could still hear the occasional rumble in the distance but it was mostly just kind of a drenching summer rain for the first probably 20 minutes up the hill we kind of separated out a little bit there was four of us and uh i think i was the first one to the patient and i you know it's a it's a little uh maybe morbid if people have read that rocky talkies the article that they wrote for the award but it was true like we were we were kind of expecting to confirm that the guy had passed away and just given the conditions and given how long it had been since anybody had been with him and the fact that he had never responded to, to really much of anything, we were, we were not optimistic and you couldn't really tell, you couldn't really see. And we knew it's a very small gully, so you can't miss somebody that's in it, but we didn't know exactly where he was. And I kind of came around a little corner and found him on a ledge and it was immediately like a, Oh, this guy is still alive and he was about halfway undressed because late stage hypothermia he was uh he was getting out of his jacket and he wasn't able to talk to me but i you know i came over the corner and and pretty much said hey hey can you can you hear me and i i got him to blink his eyes and the the next guy on the rescue team was maybe five seconds ten seconds behind me and he immediately got on the radio and was like hey we've We've got a live patient here, a viable patient. We need to kick this thing into high gear. Unfortunately, the I think the third person there was was our team doctor. So we were able to immediately get some pretty high high level medical care, and was it we're able to get the guy probably within eight ten minutes of finding him. We were able to get him stripped out of his wet clothes, which he had already. He was helping us a lot there. He was mostly out of his wet clothes. Right. And uh, get him stripped down, do a do a quick medical check. They didn't have any th- any you know things we needed to deal with immediately, other than getting him warm. And we were able to to get him into a sleeping bag with a heat pad, probably within ten fifteen minutes of finding him. At this point, it's still still dumping rain, so we're also trying to get a tarp up and you know, get him out of the weather as well. It, that, the whole sequence to start with was was pretty exciting. It went from hurry up and wait to very in it and never really stopped until really we had him in the sleeping bag. And, you know, all in all, that probably only took maybe 35, 40 minutes from the car to that point. If this episode gets you wondering about what would happen if you needed a rescue, here's some beta. As a partner-level member of the AAC, you receive up to $7,500 in rescue coverage. As a leader or advocate-level member, you can receive up to $300,000 in rescue coverage through Redpoint Travel Protection. Basically, if you find yourself in a situation where you need to get from the site of an accident that isn't at your house to the nearest appropriate medical facility, this benefit covers rescue, helicopter, ambulance, and other transportation expenses. It's important to know that this coverage works best when Redpoint initiates the rescue themselves. So program that number into your phone and satellite device ASAP once you start your AAC membership. But in the event that you are unconscious, unable to make a call, or otherwise not coordinating your own rescue, and therefore Redpoint is not contacted, members can file a claim for reimbursement. This covers pretty much any activity that you can imagine, except for flying activities or base jumping, and except for rescues above the Arctic Circle parallel north or below the 60th parallel south. And this benefit also includes medical expense coverage. We're talking about up to $5,000 per incident and $10,000 a year, so you don't have to pay your total deductible in the case of an emergency. And this helps cover medical treatment necessary, emergency stabilization received after a climbing, hiking, biking, skiing accident away from your house. So if you're not already a partner or leader level member of the AAC, join us. Dream up your next adventure without a worry. If you are already a member, make sure you educate yourself on your rescue benefit. You can find out all about it at AmericanAlpineClub.org rescue. So 
if I remember correctly, you guys ended up staying the night on the mountain. Is that correct? We did. So when, as soon as we confirmed that he was alive, like the, the first thing that was going on back at the barn with incident command was they were trying to get a helicopter mm-hmm. because where, where he was, was not super practical for us to lower. I mean, it would have been a long, long lower down a nasty scree field. And the possibility for somebody else getting hurt with rockfall was like, we kind of immediately looked around. We're like, yeah, we're not, we're not lowering this guy. This is going to be, unless we truly can't get any other options, this is going to be way too dangerous to do the lower. The incident command was working on a helicopter and people all over. We have, we had some guys that were working on a fire, I think in Wyoming that were working on getting their helicopter to come down. And so we're kind of getting some of this up on the hill, but at that point we pretty much assumed that like it was a half hour before dark. We're probably not getting this guy off of here tonight. Let's, let's make, make the plan to keep him comfortable as we can, keep ourselves comfortable as we can and be prepared to get him out as soon as it gets light in the morning. We had, I think we had one sleeping bag for the patient and we had one other sleeping bag. And so at that point we had four of us, two of us stayed with the patient and the other two guys went back to the truck at the trailhead to ferry another load, more oxygen. Oxygen at that point was kind of our highest concern. Like, let's keep this guy on oxygen. Let's get more weather gear, more more cold weather stuff, another sleeping bag. Two of the guys dropped back down to the truck and put in a second lap to get up to us with uh, with more of the critical stuff. And we were able to get the guy on a air mattress and kind of secured. We ended up having to tie him off a little bit to the mountain and and kind of create a flat spot and, you know, kind of try to figure out where we're going to bivy, how many people we're going to need. And so we're, we're communicating back down to the truck and back down to the barn. And at that point, the barn is mobilizing a whole mm-hmm. second wave of people to come up and they were getting food. They're getting all of, all of that, sourcing some more oxygen bottles at that point, pretty quickly, we realized that we needed to keep this guy on a pretty high flow of oxygen. So I think we were actually talking with EMS as well to raid a few more oxygen bottles to make sure we had enough to last him through the night at a very high flow. More or less, yeah, just getting everything squared away. I think that, that may have been mentioned in the in the Rocky Talkies uh, article was it got way more exciting when the guy started way, way warming up a little bit turned into a pretty good wrestling match. You know, I, I've taken wilderness responders for 15 years at this point, and you always hear about the disoriented, irritable, and combative patient. And for all of my time on Mountain Rescue, this was the very first time I had actually seen that situation. As soon as he started getting warm enough to be a little mobile, he got super, super combative and would be trying to get up and walk off the mountain and would be trying to pull his oxygen out. You know, we have him in a sleeping bag, so it's, you'd think he couldn't do all that much. But he was a very powerful guy. I, <laughs> we were we were all surprised and impressed. But it turned into the two of us who were up there we were taking turns straddling him and holding his hands down, pretty much a full-on, full-body wrestling match. And we were getting exhausted. It would be, we'd switch off about every 10 minutes, and the other guy would go in for his round with like, full contact wrestling. And that went on probably two hours of just, and and at that point we're radioing down to the barn, like, Hey, we need some more people up here because if we're going to wrestle this guy all night, like we're going to wear out some rescuers just to, just to keep him on the ledge he's on. And is this, was this mostly because he was like delirious from kind of coming out of hyperthermia or was there a head injury or? There was a pretty severe head injury. I believe he had, a basal skull fracture and probably pretty severe swelling on the brain uh, just from the medical personnel we had on site they were they were not optimistic about all of the things that were going on but yeah he was i mean completely delirious and i think between that and the hypothermia slowly leaving as he's warming up it would be intense bounce of shivering between between the fighting <laughs> so it was uh, it was kind of very intense with like all of the, all of the things. And unfortunately we got the other two guys who got back from the truck with another load of oxygen and 
and more sleeping bags and more stuff for us to spend the night. I think they brought up some food, some more, some more gloves. At that point, it was quite cold. It, it had pretty much got dark right about the time we got the guy settled in and started the combat. You know, it was getting getting colder, getting colder. At that point, we had four of us able to switch out and kind of wrestle with the guy. So that was that was good. You could those of us that weren't could kind of hop in a sleeping bag and, and take a break. And at that point, the rain had finally stopped. So we were also able to like worry a little less about trying to keep everything dry. So yeah, at that point, you know, we things slowed down significantly and it just became kind of a steady, steady grind of like, eh, how are you feeling? You're ready to tap out and have another guy wrestle the, the patient for a minute. And and that went on. Fortunately, a couple hours in, the patient started intermittently sleeping. The first couple times that happened, that was actually super scary. Um, to have a guy you're, you're, you've been wrestling with suddenly just like go limp and I would be leaning over and checking the pulse and act, asking our doctor, hey, check, come check me here. This guy's still, he's just deep breathing, right? And we've kind of decided, yeah, okay, he's sleeping. And then you'd relax and 10 minutes later, suddenly I'd be back to pretty full combat with the guy. That went on for a good portion of the night. I think around midnight, we got the second wave of rescuers was able to make it up to us. At some point during all of this, the storm had washed out the road. And so just we had one actually... Just one more thing. <laughs> just one more, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole the whole evening, we pretty much had our team side by side running back up and down the road, ferrying more people, more more equipment, food. We actually got some pizza from the local pizza place mm -hmm. and getting all that ferried up to us, which was, you know, a logistical exercise trying to get everything from point A to point B and radio communications as well, because for us on the mountain to get anything down to the barn, we kind of had to relay it through the truck who could hear us and then the barn could hear them, but the barn couldn't hear us directly. So we had to have, we had a couple of guys that just hung out and ran radio relay all day, all night long. But yeah, I think it was probably close to midnight. We got, got pizza, got, uh, got more oxygen bottles, got another guy, another couple guys up there to spend the night. And then how did, and you ended up getting a helicopter, right? In the morning? We did. I think we probably got notice fairly early on that we were getting a helicopter in the morning. So we were able to, you know, that we didn't have to worry about it. It was just a matter of like, all right, like as long as the weather doesn't get absolutely horrible in the morning, as soon as it gets light, we'll be able to get this guy off of here. So let's, let's keep him comfortable. Let's keep us comfortable for the rest of the night. And we know, we know the plan The the wheels are turning to, to make this happen. So as for the guys in the field, we don't, we don't have to worry about much. We'll just, our concentration is like, let's do everything we can to keep this guy alive, which as it seemed, there was, there was a number of pretty mild, I think, freak outs when you're like, oh no, we're losing him. And then we, you know, you'd, you'd check and you'd be like, oh no, he's, he's just sleeping deeply now. Like everybody take a deep breath. We're good. At this point, we're sitting there eating pizza, cracking typical mountain rescue jokes, which are probably not the humor everybody some pretty some pretty morbid humor was probably going on up there at that point in time we had some fig newtons and the jokes about the fig newtons were even getting out of control never never has a bunch of grown men be, been so happy to have like a, a box of fig newtons <laughs> yeah it's really the little things right in those situations you're you're so excited about the deliciousness of a, a cookie that you probably wouldn't eat if you were not in the mountains in the middle of the night. It was, it was kind of a long period of just hanging out. We'd take turns napping, two guys would nap, and one guy would keep an eye on the patient and be ready if he uh, if he decided he was going to go walking again. And we had a couple more guys came up, and they brought us some coffee supplies, and I think we had some freeze-dried meals. It was, you know, pretty luxury camping situation, actually, as far as that goes. You don't you don't always get people to bring you all the things you need to go backpacking. Right, exactly. But they were, those guys at that point in the night were probably doing the most difficult thing because everything was covered with about a quarter inch of air glass. So 
what is a very casual class two route when it's dry and sunny was was pretty exciting in the middle of the night with a quarter inch of ice on everything. So yeah, those guys did a great job of getting us getting us food and all of that. And at some point during the night as well, the, we had a, a guy from the mine down the road who just heard us on the radio and grabbed the bulldozer and fixed the road so we could get more stuff up. Just some local that was awesome and helped you guys out? Pretty pretty much. I mean, he he knows everybody and he knew what was going on, just, you know, paying attention to the radio traffic and was like, oh, these guys have a washout. Like, I'll hop in the bulldozer. And uh, so, you know, at 3 a.m. or something, we get a call on the radio, one of the funniest radio exchanges I've ever heard. This is like, you're a county bulldozer going for mountain rescue. Like, did I just hear your A County bulldozer? Right. <laughs> so, you know, there were some moments of, of levity there for sure. And also, like, that actually was super crucial because that allowed us to keep getting more stuff up and down the road and keep the supply train flowing. So, stuff like that. It was, uh, you know, and we occasionally would check in. And, you know, it's always nice when you're out in the field to know that you've got five people sitting at the base just listening for you and working in the background to make sure that everything is everything you need is happening so yeah we were you know it was very calm for a very very good while somewhere around 4 35 in the morning it was extremely startling to me the the patient suddenly just like he said something along the lines of like and it, he had said nothing that you could understand all night to this point like it was no communication. And it was something along the lines of like, why are you st- sitting on me? That hurts. <laughs> I think all of us there at the time just kind of had a looked at each other. And was, like, was that, was that the patient? That wasn't you, was it? And, and then he came along like, Hey, I, I really have to pee. Like you guys, like can you let me up. <laughs> it may not have been quite that fast. It was it was so startling that it that it seemed like it was instantaneous, going from from no communication to like, hey, like I need to get up. Yeah, politely asking. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it came along, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly. I think by, about by the time it got light, like we had gotten him to the point where he knew where he was. I don't think he knew what had happened to him. I think he lost a chunk of that memory but it was a i mean for all of us on the mountain it was a startling turn of events like we were pretty unconvinced that he was going to make it all night long when we started and to have him like actually talking to us by before the helicopter picked him up was pretty amazing i mean you can imagine our our morale at that point was was really high we were just watching a, an amazing sunrise and enjoying where we were at that point in time you know a lot of the stress is off when you're like oh this guy's probably going to make it till the helicopter picks him up now mm-hmm. so let's take advantage of being in a really not everybody gets to watch the sunrise from a couple hundred feet below the top of mount sniffles so it, uh, it transitioned a lot i think just before the sun came up when he kind of came around and he would alternate between sleeping still but when he was awake he would he would be talking and you could actually communicate, which was, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I guess I wanted to ask specifically, and you've already started talking a little bit about this, about kind of how, what it's like to process the emotional heaviness of this work. And it seems like finding humor when you can is a huge part of that. I think for sure. I think all of us have probably what outside people would view as a pretty morbid sense of humor. I'm sure there's people we have carried off the mountain in a litter who are like, can these guys stop cracking jokes? These are terrible jokes. Please stop. <laughs> but uh, but it keeps us, you know, you got to make light of, of that type of thing. And the camaraderie of of just joking about whatever is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. So the helicopter ended up getting him out. And d- did he end up rec- fully recovering? Do you guys know? I don't know. In the morning, yeah, the, the helicopter came over. We got the Blackhawk from uh, the HATS program out of uh, Gypsum, I believe, which we, we end up using those guys a fair bit. They have hoist capability at high altitude, which is something that's not everybody has. And yeah, they came in. They have a couple SARTECs from, I believe, Alpine Rescue that they pick up on the way. So 
they come prepackaged with with the people to to make it happen and pretty much all we have to do is prep the guy and help those guys get him into the into the bag to get hoisted into the helicopter and provide traffic control Mount Sneffels is a pretty busy mountain so even even after that storm the next morning I think we were holding back 20-ish people that were getting ready to go and they got they got treated to, to watching a helicopter hoist a guy off off the mountain first thing which I'm not sure how that would affect your climb but uh right. it would be a, an unusual experience anyway but yeah we as far as I know we heard that the guy walked out of the helicopter or walked out of the hospital the next morning which is absolutely amazing I don't know if we ever got any long-term follow-up it is pretty rare that we actually get a long-term follow-up. I think here and there we hear, oh, that person we rescued did great, or here's what went on with that person, but it's it's not that typical. Yeah, I could imagine that being uh, maybe just that the communication lines are not like fully figured out so that like you wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah, you know, patient confidentiality is, is definitely a thing, and but it is it is interesting to me, like some people reach out immediately afterwards and like, hey, this is how I'm doing. Thank you so much. And other people you just never hear from again. And like, yeah, in this case, I honestly don't know if there was any further communication or uh, to me, the fact that the guy just walked out of the hospital in I think 24 hours is absolutely incredible. I would have never, never predicted that from the start. So that was, that was a, a fantastic end to what started off as a, a day that didn't seem like it was going to be great. Yeah. And also thank you for like going into the details of that story, because I think it really demonstrates how much, how much work it is, how nerve wracking it can be, how like intense it can be, all these factors that you have to juggle, like search and rescue is a really big deal. And you guys very much deserved the grant that you got. I think all of, all of the stories were pretty amazing. And you know, I we're far from the only people doing doing stuff like that. Sometimes you get a cool one. It you know, it makes it it makes up for the ones that that are like, oh, this one's just a total bummer. I th- I think we are we're super lucky that our team spends a lot of time like with mental health and we we deal. There's a organization called Responder Alliance that uh, that works with first responders for mental health and dealing with. The trauma that can come with this and you know i think the other thing that we have as a team is that we have you know 30 people who i would consider really good friends across the board even even if i don't agree with them all the time so that makes it that makes it easier and you know i think we're, we're pretty good we're pretty proactive at trying to just make those bad experiences take care of people who experience those and i think across the board most of us would say that like being on rescues actually is like a great reliever of our day-to-day stress so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword you can you can see some unpleasant stuff and you can you can get involved in some stuff that you wouldn't want to do by choice but on the other side it, it can be incredibly therapeutic to just be out there helping people and hanging out with your good friends while you're doing it yeah, so I feel like maybe you just already answered my question, but what's the best and worst part of being on a search and rescue team for you individually? I mean, the best part is is the friendships. I'm I get to hang out with thirty of my best friends regularly and do cool stuff and help people when they're when they're having a lousy day. I've got to hold people's hands while they're in a litter getting hoisted up out of somewhere and there's not, I feel like there's not many day-to-day experiences where you can feel like you're actually making a difference, like in those moments. And it's such a little thing, but to that person, then it's, it's huge. That's the best. The worst is you lose people and you sometimes lose people, you know, it's a very small community here. And like occasionally you're gonna be doing a rescue for somebody that's a good friend. And that's the part that sucks. On the other side, like I wouldn't want anybody else doing that. And it's, you know, you get to be there and be the guy giving their family comfort in some situations. And those days suck, but in the, in the long term, I think those days are days where you can feel good about. We, we did what we could to make this bad situation better. Yeah. 
that must have been th- those times must be really heavy to be a little more analytical and take a step back for a second have you noticed trends in rescues like you mentioned earlier like everyone breaks their leg <laughs> but um <laughs> what would you tell hikers climbers skiers if you could like to, things to watch out for based on what you've seen uh, I think a huge amount of our rescues happen when people make compounding mistakes. It's not, and I think this is across the board, it's not the first little mistake you make that gets you. It's like, well, we made one, but we're going to keep pressing on and like make another one that makes that one worse. And then because we've already made two, let's make a third bad decision. And uh, I think that is so common in, in, especially in the bigger accidents is like, there's, five turnaround points that could have prevented a lot of the big ones. You know, there's, there's ones you couldn't rocks fall, things happen, but a lot, a noticeable amount are like, it's the third mistake of the day when you should have just turned around or reconsidered what you were doing as far as trends. Yeah. I think, you know, I don't think that will change that like people with lower leg injuries are going to be the most common thing. Like, People twist ankles, people twist knees. It's incredibly common. And it's, you know, given the terrain we have around here, it doesn't take a lot to make it really hard for you to get yourself out of something like that. You know, people people getting lost isn't that common around here. I mean, the nice part of where we live is you can kind of go downhill and you're kind of hit a road. <laughs> so so that fortunately we don't we don't deal with a lot. In, you know, inexperience in the outdoors because of I think we all know the last two years. Everybody who didn't do outdoor stuff has become very outdoorsy in general. And, you know, the first the first couple of years when you're doing outdoor stuff is is more dangerous. You, in general, are probably more likely to get hurt before you really know what you're doing. And then there's a certain amount of, like, the I believe it's the Dunning-Kruger effect where you, you think you know everything. You know, I think we're dealing right now with a lot of the people who just got into the outdoors are probably hitting that stage where they expect that they know everything and so they're going to make some much riskier decisions but yeah i think in general the the trends are it's stayed consistent the last couple years so people are a lot of the new people are paying attention and being conservative with their risk management so i think that in general is a really good is a really good thing potentially a really good indicator going forward that that people are are paying attention yeah let's hope hoping that that continues (laughs) <laughs> I guess last question, how did the grant impact URA Mountain Rescue's ability to operate? Like, what does that mean, the grant mean for you guys? I mean, the grant means a ton to us. Like, we're, I think people would be shocked how much of our funding comes from selling t-shirts. <laughs> oh, God. And, <laughs> I mean, right? We're a, we're a, pretending to be a professional organization here, and... A significant portion of our operating revenue is, is t-shirt sales. And I think we're getting better at, at asking people for, for chunks of money and getting getting more money. But, you know, it's also like the, there's a certain amount of the quiet professionals culture in Mountain Rescue that nobody wants to ask for anything. And so, so like, in the course of our yearly operating budget, like Rocky Talkie's grant is huge. I mean, that covers probably close to a third of our yearly expenditures for training and for equipment and all of that stuff. And, you know, that means we don't have to dig into our savings to make that happen. Well, that's awesome. I'm so happy that that can support you guys in your work. Okay. I guess one more, more, one more question. What do you think outdoor enthusiasts don't realize about how SAR teams work or what would you tell people about search and rescue? I think the greatest misconception that we hear still all the time is like, you're going to get charged if you call for a rescue and you're not going to get charged. If you call for a rescue, we're going to show up and we're going to get you out of whatever you've got. And that's, you know, that's on us to figure out how we're going to pay for it. And you know, we get a lot of hesitancy over over people like, ah, I didn't want to pay for the for the rescue, so I didn't call until it was like way late and made it way worse. Yeah. Hi there. I'm just going to clarify. Grant is speaking specifically about URA Mountain Rescue, where getting rescue services from Search and Rescue doesn't cost a thing for anyone, but transportation to the hospital, such as a helicopter evac or ambulance, is out of the SAR team's control and would cost you something. 
This is often the case for most search and rescue teams, that the services are free, but the transportation and any medical expenses you incur are not. Uh, Make sure you don't have to foot the bill and get yourself covered with the AAC's rescue benefit and medical expense coverage ASAP. I'm trying to think. I think the funding, I think most people assume we're getting paid. (laughs) I, we hear you guys don't get paid enough pretty regularly. Uh, And, you know, it's like, yeah, well, actually we're, that's technically true, but because none of us are getting paid. Yeah. But but yeah, I think most people don't realize that in general in the US, search and rescue is largely volunteer. And so, you know, be kind to your search and rescue guys. They're probably not getting paid. Um on the same token, buy a COSAR card so if you're in Colorado, so that uh we can get reimbursed if we rescue you. Little things like that make a big difference. You know, you can you can drop Twenty, thirty thousand dollars on a rescue if you have a bunch of stuff in motion really quickly. And in Colorado, if we if you happen to have that card, we can apply to the fund and get reimbursed for our expenses. And it's a little little stuff like that. That's like a three dollar card per year. It makes a huge difference. Cool. Well, I hope our listeners hear that and take action. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Grant, for sharing all of your insights and your story. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come on and talk and sincere promotion for uh, mountain rescue teams everywhere. Wherever you are, go ahead and look up your local people. And if you can swing them some cash, they could probably use it. Awesome. Yes, definitely agree with that. Okay. Thank you again. Hopefully... <laughs> You continue with many rescues and good jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. Do you want financial support for your next adventure? This fall, you can apply to the McNeil Knott Grant for female alpinists, the Mountaineering Fellowship Fund if you're a budding alpinist just starting your career, or the Jones Backcountry Grant for amateur sportboarding adventures. Author your own adventure and apply today at AmericanAlpineClub.org slash grants.